welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 25th, 2024, on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I'm your reader, Sharon Falgido, and we look at today's front page of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Few scores could spell big change to Iowa AEAs. Educators say national test alone doesn't support proposed overhaul. By Grace King of the Gazette. The scores of less than 1% of the Iowa students in special education are being cited by the governor as the primary reason she is proposing to overhaul the state's area education agencies that for decades have worked with schools to educate students with disabilities. The scores of these students, about 265 with individualized education plans who took a national test in reading and additional 265 with IEPs taking the test in math, are being used to represent about 70,000 Iowa students in special education. Iowa students with disabilities are performing below the national average, Governor Kim Reynolds in January told lawmakers in a televised address. In the last five years, they've ranked 30th or worse on 9 of 12 national assessments, yet Iowa spends over $5,300 more per pupil on special education than the national average. Her office told the Gazette those comments were based on results from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, also known as the nation's report card. But these scores representing relatively so few students nationwide should not be the lone factor when proposing education policy changes, several educators and a statistician for the National Center for Education Statistics said. The state's nine area education agencies provide special education to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development, and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. An individualized education plan is a legal document for students who need special education. It's created through a team of the child's parent, educators, and special education experts. For NAEP testing, each student with an IEP takes only one type of assessment in one subject area. Students chosen at random take segments of the entire test, which are then combined and statistically weighted to determine the state achievement for each assessment. Reynolds has cited the assessments when talking about Iowa special education students consistently performing below the national average for students with disabilities. Grady Wilburn, a statistician with the National Center for Education Statistics, cautioned that the data alone should not be used as a representative sample for students with disabilities in Iowa. I think NAEP is good to look at things from a high 30,000-foot perspective, but more granular data is helpful, Wilburn said. In general, test scores for students with disabilities are lower lower than for students without disabilities. Nationally, there's a 40-point difference in average NAEP scores between students with and without disabilities. Iowa students with disabilities score statistically similar in reading and math to similar students in dozens of other states, the NAEP results from 2022 show. Of students with IEPs who took the reading test in 2022, Iowa 4th graders performed similarly to students in 35 other states, and 8th graders performed similarly to students in 45 other states. In math, Iowa 4th graders performed similarly to students in 39 other states, and 8th graders performed similarly to students in 45 other states, the results show. There were 13 states in 2022 where in reading, 4th graders with IEPs performed significantly higher, and 3 states where 8th graders performed significantly higher. In math, there were four states in 2022 where fourth graders with IEPs performed significantly higher and two states where eighth graders performed significantly higher. A report contracted last fall by Reynolds Department of Administrative Services, which has informed bills being considered in the Iowa legislature, used NAEP to determine that while Iowa spent over $14,000 each on students with disabilities in 2022, the fourth graders taking the reading test scored at 41st in the nation, while the eighth graders scored at 16th in the nation in reading. 
for math, fourth graders scored at 32nd and eighth graders scored 23rd. Additionally, NAEP scores show that academic proficiency scores of Iowa students with disabilities have declined since the early 2000s, the report concluded. The report did consider performance on statewide assessments in addition to the national NAEP scores. In the 2023 Iowa Statewide Assessment of Student Progress Test, students with disabilities performed up to 45% lower than all other students. That same year, other states highlighted in the report, Florida, Georgia, Nebraska, and South Dakota, also showed gaps for students with disabilities, but none of those cited were as pronounced as Iowa's. The report was created by Virginia-based Consult Guidehouse, which also generated recommendations in 2022, forming the basis of a broad structuring of state government. Ted Stilwell, who served as the director of the Iowa Department of Education under Republican Governor Terry Branstead and Democratic Governor Tom Vilsack, said the conclusion reached in the Guidehouse report are flawed. A small point difference in the score can translate into a seemingly big difference in the national ranking. Take, for instance, the fourth grade math results where Iowa students with disabilities ranked 32nd in 2022. Those students scored only one point lower than the national average. If you've talked to a statistician, that's not a very significant difference, Stilwell said. In other tests, the 8th graders were two points short of the national average in reading and math, although the 4th graders scored seven points below the national average in reading. Still, those test scores do not justify Reynolds' proposal to limit the services provided by the area education agencies and to centralize special education oversight in a new division within the Iowa Department of Education in Des Moines, Stilwell argued. Certainly those results could be better, Stilwell said. Everyone would like students with disabilities to achieve at a higher level, but to say they're way behind the national average is just not correct. Test scores alone do not determine the achievement for students in special education, educators say. Cindy Yellick, chief administrator of Central Iowa's Heartland AEA, said a bender indicator of achievement for students with disabilities might be graduation and dropout rates. The graduation rate for Iowa children with disabilities rose from almost 70% in 2016 to just over 80% in 2020. The dropout rate for students with IEPs was almost 20% in 2016, but decreased to about 17% in 2020, according to data collected by area education agencies. House File 2612 would allow school district to retain the state funding that now goes to the AEAs for special education, media, and other services beginning in the 25-26 school year. It also would bring much of the oversight of the AEAs under the Department of Education. House Republicans proposed the legislation after blocking Reynolds' bill calling for more dramatic changes early in the session. Under the House version, districts would have to use the special education funds with the AEAs, but they could spend the other dollars with the AEAs or with another party, such as a private company. Senate Republicans advanced a bill that more closely aligns with Reynolds' bill, allowing school districts to contract with outside entities to provide special education support. Under the Senate bill, schools would receive 90% of their state special education funding, while the AEAs would receive the other 10%. The school districts could spend their money on the AEA services or contract with an outside party instead. The bill would direct 60% of the funding for media services and education services, which are paid with property taxes, to the school districts, who could then contract with the AEAs or another party for those services. The AEAs would retain the other 40% of the funding. It also would create a division of special education, directing the Department of Education to work with the AEAs on a plan to transfer employees focused on oversight to the department. Also from the front page, could GOP bills target Iowa City's migrant shelter? By Tom Barton of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau in Iowa City. Immigrant workers and Catholic charities worry a package of bills being advanced by Iowa Republican lawmakers would criminalize and could lead to the closure of faith-based migrant shelters and civic engagement or organizations to house or transport asylum seekers. 
Republican Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is suing Catholic Migrant Shelter Annunciation House under similar legislation signed into law in that state to turn over information about the guests they serve. Annunciation House, a network of shelters that serves migrants, sought relief from the Attorney's General's demand to immediately release information about its clients. The state denied the extension, so the Catholic nonprofit sued the state, requesting a court rule on which documents the group must hand over to the Attorney General. Paxton, in response, announced his office was suing the organization for failing to comply with the demand and accused the religious group of engaging in human smuggling of worsening illegal immigration. Texas Governor Greg Abbott last year signed a law being challenged as unconstitutional by the Justice Department, allowing law enforcement officials to arrest people they suspect of being migrants who crossed into the country illegally. It also would allow judges to order their removal and enlist law enforcement to transport migrants to the border so they can return to Mexico, whether or not that is their country of origin. Republicans in the Iowa House and Senate have advanced similar legislation. The Iowa City Catholic Worker House, like Annunciation House in El Paso, Texas, helps sponsor and resettle asylum seekers and provides food, housing, clothing, transportation, and accompaniment and connections to legal assistance, school enrollment, and supportive care. Both organizations work with Immigration and Customs Enforcement and the Department of Homeland Security to house people whom the agencies have processed and released, who often have been permitted into the country while they await hearings. This is what is at stake in Iowa if lawmakers pass anti-immigration legislation here, according to an action alert email and online petition sent Thursday to 2,000 Catholic Worker House supporters. Not only will essential workers with a precarious immigration status be put at even more risk, faith-based groups that serve and organize immigrant workers, like Escucha Mivos and the Iowa City Catholic Worker, will also be targeted. A top House Republican saw lawmakers amended the bill so as not to apply to churches, charities, or people who in good faith are trying to take care of people. Senate File 2340 and House File 2567 would make it a state felony to re-enter Iowa after being previously deported from the U.S., State courts would be permitted to order the removal of immigrants arrested under the new state law, and local officials would be given legal immunity when assisting immigration enforcement measures. Officers and state agencies would be cleared to transport undocumented migrants to ports of entry to make sure they comply. Law enforcement officers would not be allowed to arrest or detain an undocumented migrant on the grounds of a public or private school, place of worship at a health care facility where a migrant is receiving medical treatment, or those receiving a medical examination for sexual assault. Advocates warn bills violate protections for asylum seekers. Proponents say the legislation is needed to crack down on increases in fentanyl seizures, drug overdose deaths, and human trafficking attributed to illegal immigration issues and a failure of Democratic President Joe Biden's administration and Congress to secure the border and enforce federal immigration laws. Immigration rights advocates warn the measures would lead to widespread racial profiling and circumvent protections asylum seekers have under constitutional law and international obligations. They also argue Iowa courts and law enforcement are not equipped and lack the training, legal expertise, and jurisdiction to handle immigration law and make decisions about a person's immigration status. Federal courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, have ruled that immigration laws can be enforced only by the federal government. These bills put all Iowans and visitors at risk of profiling while criminalizing and targeting our churches and working-class immigrant communities, according to an online petition by the Iowa City Catholic Worker and Escucha Mivos calling on Governor Kim Reynolds and Republican Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd to publicly condemn the bills. Catholic social teaching informs us that public policy should welcome the stranger and have a preferential option for the poor, the petition states. Anti-immigrant, anti-worker, anti-charity legislation 
could cost Iowa billions in lost state GDP in just one year. But the true cost to our hardworking immigrant families and faith communities will be incalculable. Clayton Dimambu is a legal permanent resident from the Democratic Republic of the Congo and an organizer with the immigrant rights organization Escucha Mi Voz, or Hear My Voice. Dimambu entered the U.S. and came to Iowa under the Diversity Visa Lottery Program, which awards up to 50,000 immigrant visas each year to citizens of countries with low immigration rates. He drives undocumented Congolese refugees to appointments, including to court dates and meeting with immigration lawyers and U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement check-ins. Dimambu worries that should the Iowa legislature pass similar laws, he could be pulled over and fined or jailed for having an undocumented immigrants in his vehicle. Patrol grants entry as they continue parole grants entry as they continue their asylum case. However, an individual who is paroled has not been formally admitted into the United States for purposes of immigration law. Ninaska Campos of Iowa City is an immigrant worker and single mother of two who emigrated with her family from Honduras in 2019 and applied for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. Her husband was deported in 2020. She works at a hotel, volunteers with the Catholic Worker House to help other families seeking asylum, and helps start Escucha Mi Voz. The Iowa City Catholic Worker House is one of the strongest tools there is for us here in Johnson County, Campos said through interpreter Emily Sinwell, co-founder of the Iowa City Catholic Worker House. It really is unconditional support that they give out to, to that immigrant community. It's very difficult to just put somebody on the street. Somebody doesn't have any family or anywhere to go. Though they may be undocumented or have tenuous legal status and could be deported on a whim, those families served by the faith-based nonprofit fill numerous important jobs and pay taxes in farm, housekeeping, construction, roofing, and meatpacking work that others won't take, Campos said. Many of whom, including Campos, worked as essential frontline workers during the COVID-19 pandemic, but were excluded from stimulus checks and federal assistance. Campos worked in a hotel taking care of individuals with COVID-19 who had to isolate from family members. These are hurtful laws, she said. You have to realize these laws that are attacking the immigrant community, they're attacking those same people that work to keep the state going economically day in and day out. If lawmakers pushing forward these laws care so much about their country, they have to realize the economy of this country is sustained by immigrants. Turning to the Iowa Today and the Week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state. Under the heading in the news, Religious Freedom Bill passes Senate. Iowa is one step closer to having a Religious Freedom Restoration Act in place, which would set a higher legal bar for government actions that burden a person's exercise of religion. Supporters said it was necessary to preserve religious liberties, while opponents said it would provide free reign to discriminate against LGBTQ individuals, women, and other minorities. The Iowa Senate passed the bill on a party-line vote Tuesday. Majority Republicans argued the bill was necessary because of a 1993 U.S. Supreme Court case that eroded protections for religious freedom. Democrats warned of abuses that could allow denial of housing to unmarried or same-sex couples and shield child, child labor violations. House declares Caitlin Clark Day. Iowa House members passed a resolution Thursday declaring February 22, 2024 as Caitlin Clark Day in Iowa. The resolution comes after the Hawkeye basketball star broke the all-time NCAA women's basketball scoring record February 15th, dropping a school record of 49 points in the Iowa win against Michigan. Iowa schools cited for asbestos. The North Lynn Community School District allowed staff to work while the high school building in Coggin was contaminated with asbestos, according to a citation from the Iowa Occupational Safety and Health Administration. The Worker Safety Agency fined the school $70,000, following a $6,000 fine from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources earlier this year. House passes 3% school funding boost. Iowa House Republicans on Thursday passed a bill that would increase state funding to schools by $147 million, amounting to a 3% boost in state aid to K-12 education. 
The chamber must come to an agreement with the Senate, which is not publicly settled on a level of increase it will propose for school funding. The governor asked for a 2.5% increase. The House bill would bring Iowa's general fund spending on K-12 schools to around $3.8 billion. The per-pupil spending would increase to $7,864. Democrats decried the bill as a de facto cut that does not keep up with expenses and inflation. Republicans argued it a sustainable increase and part of a larger package that includes increasing teacher and paraeducator salaries. Alcohol, a factor in rising cancer cases. The Iowa Cancer Registry report released Tuesday shows Iowa continues to have the second highest cancer rate in the nation and the fastest growing rate of new cancers, with another 21,000 estimated this year. One reason behind the high rates could be Iowa's high rate of alcohol use and abuse, according to the new report. I think it's a cultural thing in our state, and it's something that I think people need to be aware of, University of Iowa professor Mary Charlton said. According to a survey, only 40% of the general public even knew that alcohol could contribute or cause cancer. Medicaid extension would leave out new mothers. The Iowa Senate passed a bill last week that would extend coverage of postpartum care under Medicaid from two months to 12 months, but make it harder to qualify for the benefit. The bill would lower the income eligibility to qualify for the care, resulting in 1,300 women and 400 infants losing insurance coverage. Lawmakers hear input on AEA bill. Parents, educators, and superintendents weighed in on a proposed Iowa House bill to change the funding structure and oversight of the state's area education agencies. At a Wednesday hearing, parents of students with disabilities said they worried the legislation would weaken special education opportunities in the state and lead to inequities for students with disabilities. Under the heading, they said... This is a defensive measure. The courts have eaten away at religious freedom nationally, and that applies to our state as well. This is a defensive mechanism, saying we need to prioritize the First Amendment. Senator Jeff Taylor, Republican Sioux Center on Religious Freedom Bill, and Religious freedom is important. Those of us who are members of minority religious communities are particularly cognizant of that. The rule of law is also important. We cannot create exemptions that encourage people to pick and choose which laws they will follow. Senator Janice Weiner, Democrat Iowa City, on the Religious Freedom Bill. Under the heading Odds and Ends, Iowa State Fair, the Avid Brothers and Gabriel Iglesias will join the lineup of grandstand performers at the Iowa State Fair, the fair announced last week. Other headliners will include Jelly Roll, Neo, and Motley Crue. The shows will run from August 8th to August 18th, with tickets costing $20 to $125. Open Meetings Iowa House lawmakers passed a bill to increase penalties for violating Iowa's open meetings law, which requires public entities to hold public meetings. The bill was inspired by actions in Davenport that have been criticized as violations of open government laws. And water cooler, heading, opioid treatment. Iowa lawmakers are beginning the process of spending millions of dollars on opioid addiction treatment and prevention. The Opioid Settlement Fund holds money that Iowa won in settlements with major opioid manufacturers and distributors over their role in the opioid crisis. The state is expected to receive around $144 million from the settlements. And turning to the Insight page, we have a guest column from David V. Wendell, a Marian historian specializing in American history. Wendell writes, Iowa's stand against slavery. This year marks the 185th anniversary of two Iowa court rulings declaring human beings are not property. Black History Month is an appropriate time to celebrate the 185th anniversary of a defining moment in Iowa's heritage. In 1804, when Iowa's land was added to the U.S. by the Louisiana Purchase, slavery was legal. As territories were carved out of the then northwest reaches of the nation, slavery was banned within them. By 1820, those boundaries were identified further when the Missouri Compromise allowed that state to permit slavery but prohibited such involuntary servitude north of its border. 
Burlington, at a narrow point on the Mississippi River that made it a popular crossing, was the territorial capital and home to the court system, both of which began to thrive in the late 1830s. By this time, Thomas Easton had moved from New Orleans to serve as city engineer. He brought with him a black woman known simply by the name Rachel, whom he had purchased for $385 in Louisiana. Learning of her status as a slave in the Iowa Territory, Burlington Mayor David Hendershot removed her from Easton's residence and gave her refuge. Easton sued Hendershot, and the case was heard by the Territorial District Court Judge Charles Mason. Mason, a prominent abolitionist, ruled on May 6, 1839, that Rachel was a freed woman. The next day, Easton filed an appeal of the case, claiming Rachel still was his property, and the county sheriff forcibly removed Rachel from the mayor's protection. Rachel then signed, with an X, a writ of habeas corpus, authored by Mason, stating she chose to go with Hendershoft and claimed false imprisonment against the sheriff and Easton. Reconvening his court on May 8th, Mason presided over testimony affirming Rachel's choice, and Easton, knowing Mason's anti-slavery stance and not wanting a penalty against him or the sheriff, agreed to allow the case to be dismissed, which awarded Rachel her freedom. Mason, however, also was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the Iowa Territory and would shortly hear a second case that would settle the issue of slavery far more definitively and on a larger scale. <clears throat> Jordan Montgomery of Virginia purchased a slave named Ralph at an Old Dominion market in 1830. Four years later, Montgomery moved to Missouri but agreed to award Ralph his freedom in exchange for $500. Not having that sum, it was mutually agreed that Ralph would go to Dubuque, get a job as a lead miner, and direct payments to Montgomery. Ralph settled in Dubuque. Believing himself to be a free man, he did not dispatch any installments to his former master. Montgomery demanded the county sheriff arrest Ralph and remand him to Montgomery in Missouri. The sheriff captured Ralph and placed him on a boat destined for St. Louis. But another miner whom Ralph had befriended filed a writ of habeas corpus on behalf of the, quote, prisoner. Presented with the document, the sheriff in Bellevue escorted Ralph off the boat. The habeas corpus case was supposed to be held in district court, but was elevated by the presiding judge in Dubuque to the Territorial Supreme Court. In Burlington on July 4, 1839, Justice Mason ruled in favor of the petitioner declaring Ralph, a man of color, is free by operation of law. Mason also acknowledged that, as a matter of law, Ralph had entered into a legal contract and thus was liable for the sum he agreed to pay Montgomery. But even with that payment having not yet been rendered, it did not make him a fugitive slave. To clarify the larger issue, Mason then added, in accordance with the Compromise of 1820, lands of the Louisiana Purchase north of Missouri prohibited slavery, and as such a master could not exercise acts of ownership over them. He admonished all slaveholders, making clear what they claim to be property are human beings and that it is thus proper that the laws extend equal protection to men of all conditions and colors. It was in Iowa, therefore, where the die was cast for the future legal challenges to slavery and involuntary servitude, including the Dred Scott v. John Sanford case that 18 years later threatened to tear apart nationally all the progress made in Iowa Territory class courtrooms. In this 185th anniversary year since those hallmark decisions were handed down, Iowa's courts and its adherence to freedom should be remembered during this Black History Month. Gazette editorial fellow Chris Esperson writes, Public libraries are a community treasure. I can do it. I believe in myself, but I need help, Dara Schmidt describes the 89-year-old woman who visited the downtown Cedar Rapids library because she wanted to open an email account. Her son had told her she could get regular pictures of her grandchildren if she just would get an email address. The staff helped her through the process and are now treated to adorable pictures every Tuesday morning when she makes her regular visits. There are over 500 libraries in Iowa, and they are filled with so much more than books. They hold countless stories like this one. Two bills that would have negatively impacted libraries may have stalled in the House and Senate, but there is still a reason to be wary. 
As Deborah Caldwell Stone said of the wave of legislation that could impact libraries, this is not a culture war, it's a threat to our democracy. Schmidt, library director of the Cedar Rapids Public Library, described what she sees as the beauty of Iowa libraries. Where else can you go where a young family is going to story time and having a time of their lives, and a young professional is also there using it as a working space? Someone down on luck that can have a warm place to be and just read a book. Seniors use us because it is a safe place to be. They can escape isolation. What a wonderful thing to be able to be in public. They can interact with others or sit quietly in a comfortable chair and just not be alone. And no one needs to pay any money to walk in the door. Libraries provide an ever-expanding role in the lives of Iowans. Beyond lending books and other materials, they offer access to computers and the internet, offer free programs for all age ranges, and provide climate-controlled environments for the unhoused or those without access to heating and cooling, a consideration that is increasingly important given the weather extremes we have experienced in Iowa. They provide meeting spaces for all groups, even groups like Moms for Liberty who would like to remove some of their offerings. Schmidt is adamant that everyone has the right to use public library services. There is an active chapter here, and they meet at the Cedar Rapids Public Library. They are welcome to do so. I don't have to agree with others to let people meet in public spaces. We are open to everyone. Libraries act as navigators and safe spaces, and their staff provide their valuable research skills to patrons on a broad range of topics. During the pandemic, they were a lifeline to parents struggling with homeschooling. They are now partnering with public health to improve the lives of Iowans by posting community health workshops in some locations. Public libraries empower communities and are vital to our democracy which is why HSB 678 and SSB 3131 were so concerning. They go beyond the so-called culture war of banning certain books. Don't get me wrong, discrimination and threats to intellectual freedom are very concerning. But they threaten the very existence of libraries by changing language that municipalities may levy taxes to fund public libraries instead of mandating this funding, SSB 3131, and having already busy city councils more actively involved in replacing library board members and library operational issues, HSB 678. The ways Cedar Rapids libraries and library staff help residents can be heartwarming, but also life-changing. Rebecca Vernon, a librarian at the Cedar Rapids Library, shared in the director's report him, her impact <clears throat> on a library visitor last year. I was helping a patron release a print job. She shared that, thanks to the library's computer, she was able to get a new job recently. She was excited that soon she would now be able to get her own computer. Whether it is finding a job, gaining citizenship, or developing a reluctant child's love of reading, the investments made in this public institution are returned multifold. Schmidt's first job was a shelver at the Manchester Library. She moved away from Iowa and tried other occupations, but realized that what she really loved was working in the public library. People who work, volunteer, use libraries, these people actually believe in them. Cedar Rapids has been able to build a new Westside library and will eventually move out of the currently rented space, thanks to the estate donation of Nadine Sandberg. Schmidt describes this was not the result of a cultivated relationship, but instead a random act of faith. Her estate lawyer said she wanted to leave her legacy to someplace that would do great things with it. What an incredible and humbling honor and responsibility that people care out there and have faith and believe that libraries do and will continue to do great things for their community. Matt McGarvey, executive director of Telegen Community Initiative, also sees the immense value of libraries and has invested considerably in them. Our experiences with grant support to projects that utilize libraries to address place-based health disparities is real, he said. Libraries have much to offer beyond books. They are a marker of community vitality. Similar to parks, community centers, and schools, library settings can and do have a potential as a venue for health knowledge and activity in any community if viewed creatively. What can you do? 
Keep writing to your legislator showing up at the Capitol, but more than anything, invite others to understand the value that libraries offer all Iowans, regardless of politics or socioeconomic standing. Schmidt encourages Iowans to begin the conversation with their legislators with an invitation instead of just talking at them by saying, I would love to invite you to a program so you can see what value us Iowans get from libraries, she continues. Engage them in a positive way to show the value. We need people who are passionate. We need people to get mad, but we also need to be able to have conversations. And turning to the community letters and today's syndicated cartoon, the syndicated cartoon from Clay Bennett, a cartoonist distributed by Counterpoint Media. It's the bottom half of a basketball player. The basketball's labeled 2024, and the shorts of the player have on the Republican elephant and the GOP. It's labeled the Trump sneakers, and on the basketball player's feet are the golden sneakers that Donald Trump is currently selling for, I think, $400. The sneakers' shoelaces are tied together so that if the player tries to walk forward, he will trip. The first letter is from Kevin Melsha of Fairfax on embryos as living and gender parity on boards. With all of the recent rulings that life starts at conception, why does one have to wait till the child is born for the tax deduction? With the Alabama ruling regarding IVF embryos being life, shouldn't they be able to claim this as dependents as well? Seems as there is a conflict here. As to changing the law regarding gender equity on boards, I agree women have come a long way. However, over 60% of single-parent homes are headed by a woman. Example, a woman with a degree from the UI Tippy Business School running a business during the day is probably not going to run for a council seat and abandon her child in the evening. Just random thoughts. Always a freakonomics outcome. Some good, some bad. Kevin Melsha of Fairfax. Next, Robin Skogman of Cedar Rapids writes, Senators should reconsider national security votes. Mark Consett's letter to the editor on Wednesday's newspaper, February 21st, explained perfectly why this country is in such a mess. Thank you to Mr. Consett for expressing the obvious. Hopefully, Iowa senators will evaluate the positions on the $95 billion national security package that they approved and consider America's security first. Robert's, Robin Skogman of Cedar Rapids. Next, Tom Pursoon of Coralville writes, Left lane driving as a traffic offense is stupid. The Iowa Senate passed a bill, SF-2116, that makes driving in the left lane of a double-lane highway a traffic offense, unless you are passing. This is a stupid bill. The next time you are driving on I-380, imagine what traffic would be like if everyone both obeyed the speed limit and drove only in the right lane except to pass. The result would be a single long line of traffic in the right lane, disrupted periodically by someone passing a slightly slower vehicle. Congestion would increase along with crashes, driving time, and ultimately driver impatience. It would become a vicious downward spiral. Double lane highways exist for a purpose, to increase the capacity of the road. Why restrict use of that extra capacity? If there is data to support that this law would reduce traffic crashes, let's see it. Otherwise, the House needs to vote it down. Tom Persoon of Coralville. Next, Lori Zager of Iowa City writes, Mallard Strip about Biden was cruel. The Gazette opinion editors hit a new low when they decided to publish the Mallard Fillmore comic strip on February 20th, which blatantly made fun of our president's stuttering. Shame on you. That was a thoughtless and cruel attack on all who live with this disability, and the strip added nothing of value to a political discourse. Do a better job. Lori Zager of Iowa City. Next, Charles Sizio of Cedar Rapids writes, Donald Trump says it best when he says nothing at all. Keith Whitley's and Allison Krause's renditions of When You Say Nothing At All got me thinking about Trump. Here's a four-liner. The smirk on your face lets us know you're a fake. The guilt in your eyes says you've been on the take. The touch of your hand is exactly a spidery crawl. Your schoolboy retorts they make no good sense at all. Think twice before you vote. Charles Sizio of Cedar Rapids. Next, Shirley Rudy of Cedar Rapids writes, Caitlin Clark Gazette cover set gold standard of its own. 
The Gazette's February 16th cover shouted gold standard with a full-page photo of Iowa's Iowa's Caitlin Clark marking her historic achievement of surpassing the scoring record in NCAA women's basketball. Caitlin set a gold standard, but in my view, so did the Gazette. That cover was spectacular in every sense of that overused word. Caitlin said after her win that she wouldn't be where she is without her teammates. To wit, that cover passed through many journalistic hands before erupting into glory onto the page. As a retired Gazette columnist, I have an index into the work and the creativity that went into that cover. So kudos to Caitlin and kudos to the Gazette. Iowa doesn't just grow corn, we grow greatness. Shirley Rudy of Cedar Rapids. Next, John Thorson of Cedar Rapids writes games on Peacock, Rob non-streaming fans. I couldn't agree more with my class, February 15th, a moment to make Iowa proud as Peacocks. Fans of women's basketball and Caitlin Clark are being robbed of a treasured experience. Like last Thursday's February 22nd game, Wednesday's February 28th game will appear only on Peacock. I tried to call the UI athletic director to complain, but no one answered the phone. Is there time to reschedule the other games on Peacock in February? If so, I demand a schedule that's accessible to the vast majority of fans who love the game but don't possess tickets. Joan Thorson of Cedar Rapids. The final letter is from Anna Marie Marcalis of Iowa City. Stop Big Ten from streaming on Peacock. Peacock is not family-friendly. It has raunchy commercials. Peacock has more commercials than cable or dish. Peacock uses up game time for commercials. Peacock is not available in most sports venues or bars. Peacock alienates Iowa fans. Peacock costs too much for fans already paying for cable or dish. Anna Marie Marcalis of Iowa City. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 25th, 2024, on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I am your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and we turn to today's obituaries. We have one other notice. Dorothy May Slatten, born Dorothy May Crutchlio, and known as Dot, age 80, died February 23rd. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Cedar Rapids Handling Arrangements. Lillian Winslow, age 96, of Belle Plaine, went home to be with her Lord on February 19th. Lillian loved serving the Lord and her family throughout her life. As a lifelong member of Christ United Methodist Church, she taught Bible school, Sunday school, and kids club. She was the chairman of the church missions committee for 43 years. She and her husband regularly delivered cassette takes of the Sunday church services to several homebound parishioners. They loved Bible study and supporting missionary work. Lillian was instrumental in beginning the first South Benton County Crop Hunger Walk and worked on the committee for several years. She served as a Cub Scout den mother, delivered meals on wheels, and played the piano and conducted Bible study at the nursing home. She was a 75-year member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, holding several offices, including the Office of Regent, twice. She also had a number of roles in Eastern Star and served as the Rainbow Mother Advisor. Funeral services for Lillian will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd at Grace Community Church, 1400 8th Avenue in Belle Plaine. Pastor Don Drejos will officiate. Burial will take place at 2 p.m. Sunday, March 3rd, at the Winslow Cemetery near the Winslow Farm. Visitation for Lillian will be held from 10 to 11 a.m. at the church, preceding the memorial service. Gary Allen Sveck, age 83, of Cedar Rapids, passed away February 22nd. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, February 28th at Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. Graveside services will be 11 a.m. Thursday, February 29th at Czech National Cemetery. Gary worked at Rockwell Collins and General Electric, where he was proud to be part of the Apollo, Mercury, Gemini, and Saturn programs in conjunction with NASA. Following, he worked at Control Data Corp, NSA, and Northland Financial for many years. He completed his working career at Lefebvre, Van Meter, and Nordstrom. Gary was a gemologist working in the family business, Iowa Diamond Tool Company, and Royal Jewelers. 
He was a member of the El Cahir Shrine. He had a lifelong interest in the space program. He also enjoyed racing boats, performing magic, being involved with his grandson at Bruce Taekwondo Academy, and spending time with family. Don Weatherwax II, known as Don of Cedar Rapids, escaped this mortal realm early Thursday morning, ending his battle with multiple sclerosis on his own terms. He was 66 years old and 38 years sober. Don was a lifelong learner, but never enjoyed doing anything for too long. In this practice, he amassed more certifications and career paths than anyone, even himself, can fully or accurately account. As an avid traveler, Don rarely met a stranger. He shared his love of nature with everyone he encountered, never failing to recommend a trip to Flathead Lake and Glacier National Park, where his family spent many wonderful and memorable summers. One of the most defining moments in his life was his decision to become sober, and he committed himself fully to sobriety. Through Alcoholics Anonymous, he built an entirely new life and immersed himself in the AA community of support. Services will be held Memorial Day weekend at Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories. Details will be published in May. Terry Cranston, age 84, of Overland Park, Kansas, formerly of Cedar Rapids, died February 18th. A visitation for Terry will be held Friday, March 8th, from 4 to 6 p.m. at McGilley and Hogue Chapel, 8024 Santa Fe Drive, Overland Park, Kansas. A private family memorial service will follow the visitation. John Robert Herter, age 88, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully at Meadowview Memory Care Village in Cedar Rapids on February 21st. Funeral Mass, Tuesday, March 5th at 10 a.m. at St. Jude Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids by Rev. Jim Brockman. Friends may visit with the family from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, March 4th at TN Funeral Home, where a rosary will be recited by the Knights of Columbus at 4 p.m. A visitation will also be held at St. Jude on Tuesday after 9 a.m. He was a member of American Legion Post 572, Catholic layman, cadets of St. George, and a fourth-degree member of the Knights of Columbus Council 909, where he was a past Grand Knight. John volunteered for Horizon Meals on Wheels for many years. He also enjoyed golfing, fishing, especially his annual fishing trip to Canada with his friends, and attending Iowa Hawkeye football games. Early in his career, he worked in pharmaceutical sales and then went to work for Xerox Corporation as a sales executive for 32 years. John enlisted in the United States Army Reserves in 1957 and was discharged honorably in December 1963. He was a co-worker of Mother Teresa and exemplified her mission to do small things with great love. He was a charter member of the St. Jude Parish, and he took an active role in many capacities there, including the building committee for what would become the church as it is today, as well as a familiar hand at the Sweet Corn Festival from its beginnings. Francis Joan Langham, born Francis Joan Kovarik, age 86, of Marion, passed away February 13th at her home, surrounded by her loved ones. A funeral mass will be held 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, February 27th, at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Marion, where the family will greet friends one hour before the service. Burial will follow at Our Lady of Lourdes Cemetery in Elma, Iowa. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family with arrangements. Janet Stickle, age 94, of Anamosa, was a grand woman who died peacefully at her home in the arms of her granddaughters Holly and Jess on February 23rd. Funeral services will be held 11 a Tuesday morning, February 27th, at the Getch Funeral Home, Anamosa, with a private family service in the Urbana Cemetery. Friends may call from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday at the Getch Funeral Home in Anamosa. Catherine Newhall will officiate at the services. Following her graduation from high school, Janet took a bus to Iowa where she worked for the county attorney in the morning and did bookkeeping for a dairy farm in the afternoon. In 1950, she started her successful farming career near Anamosa while raising her sons. She remained there for 70 plus years. 
She was an astute businesswoman who had a great deal of compassion. <clears throat> During the early years, she maintained the office, managed the bull rental, and cooking three meals a day for her hired men. Janet always had time for social events. She played bridge and cribbage, bingo, and bowling. She played bridge with friends just two weeks before her death. Douglas A. Kolodik Sr., age 85, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on February 12th. He passed at Promise House due to Louis body dementia. Doug served in the United States Air Force as crew chief with the 31st Fighter Squadron. During his service, he traveled around Africa and Europe. After his military service, Doug served on the CR Fire Department and eventually worked at Cherry Burrell. In his spare time, Doug enjoyed participating in the CR Corvette Club, Isaac Walton League, and model railroading. His passion for trains led to an intricately designed layout that was highly regarded among fellow hobbyists. A celebration of life will be planned for a later date. Jeffrey Allen Randall, age 54, of Marion, passed away peacefully on February 19th, surrounded by family. A celebration of life will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 29th, at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home in Cedar Rapids. Jeff worked as an ROW permit technician for the city of Cedar Rapids for many years. He loved archiving obscure punk rock music, collected wristwatches, and was an accomplished artist. Dustin Keith Bumgarner, age 33, of Marion, passed away February 20th at Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. A memorial service will be held at 2 p.m. Saturday, March 2nd, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, where the family will greet friends from 1 until 2 p.m. Dustin was a 2009 graduate of Linmar High School and went on to attend the University of Northern Iowa and Kirkwood Community College. He was a huge Packers, Hawkeyes, and Braves fan. Elmer L. Wart, age 86, passed away February 23rd at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Visitation, 4 to 8 p.m. Wednesday, February 28th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Elmer enjoyed working on the farm in his younger years. Moving into Cedar Rapids in 1980, he was an all-around handyman. People will remember Elmer riding his bike with a mower or a cart full of cans around the southeast side of Cedar Rapids. The honorary mayor of Mount Vernon Road had never a callous word to say about anyone. He was the loudest whistler and the best rubbernecker around. His love of music, cards, puzzles, pigs, and bingo made for an extremely generous heart and smile. Mark Allen McNabb, age 62, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully on February 16th. Per Mark's request, there will be no funeral service. A celebration of life is being planned for this summer at Ellis Park. Mark's work, Mark worked with concrete for over 30 years. He loved visiting with friends and was a multiple-point mud run champion along with his late friend Larry Rossman. In his free time, he watched NHRA, NFL, classic cars, especially Camaros, and watched the Iowa Hawkeyes with his very special dog friend, Raven. Larry Davis of Ladora, the family of Larry Davis, will be celebrating his life on Saturday, April 13th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Marengo Golf Club. Please join us to share a favorite story, toast, laugh, or hug as we honor this remarkable man on what would have been his 87th birthday. Larry joined the Army but was never deployed. Larry was a farmer with his wife. Larry and Sharon owned the Double D in Williamsburg from 1969 to 1975. With the help of Dave and Karen DeBrower, they managed it until it became the sundown. He enjoyed celebration gatherings, golfing, playing cards, the Ladora Saddle Club, and bull riding in his younger years. Rosalie Milden of Cedar Rapids, born February 6, 1949, was called home by her loving husband Jim on December 29, 2023. Rose's hobbies included gardening, gardening, and more gardening. She gained master gardener status from Iowa State University. Her favorite plant was a hosta. At one point, she had over 50 different types of hosta in her garden, much to the chagrin of her husband, Jim, who just wanted an outdoor train set. 
She loved Star Trek and considered Sisko to be the better captain. She spent many hours volunteering at the Indian Creek Nature Center and had an affinity for antique glasswork. A celebration of life will be held at St. Paul's United Methodist Church at 10 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd. Robert J. Fremmel, known as Bob, age 87, passed away February 22nd at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, February 27th at St. Paul Catholic Church in Newhall with Reverend Jacob Dunn as celebrant. Interment with Graveside Military Rites will be held at St. John Cemetery in Newhall. Visitation will be from 4 to 7.30 p.m. on Monday, also at the church. Bob was a lifelong farmer and raised cattle, hogs, and sheep, as well as being a grower for Pioneer Seed Corn. He also worked at Country Floors and Interiors and the Newhall Feed Store for a number of years. Bob loved the farm life and served on the board of the Benton County Fair for decades. He held memberships in 4-H as a member in his youth and later as 4-H leader and extension member, the Benton County Cattlemen's Association and the Pork Producers. He was also a proud member of the John Ward McGranahan Post Number 167 in Newhall. John Wyckoff, age 66, of Mission, Texas, formerly of Vinton, passed away February 7th at his home after a short battle with cancer. He served in the U.S. Army in Vietnam. Services will be held at a later date. Turning to the sports page, Mike Lost writes, Does Clark have a fever for Indiana? We'll see. Bloomington, Indiana. Exiting I-74 and driving from Crawfordsville, Indiana to Indiana University here in Bloomington always feels like you're leaving the rat race and retreating to a country home. You go past or through Fincastle and Greencastle, Limedale and Cloverdale. There are signs for unincorporated towns called Raccoon and Carp, clearly founded by people who thought a Shakespeare asking, what's in a name? Finally, you arrive at Bloomington, a nice college city set amid rolling hills with many university buildings made of limestone from nearby quarries. And there's basketball, too. I don't know if I'd call basketball Indiana's religion, but it certainly is the state's passion. Something often said here, in 49 states, it's just basketball. Indiana University men's basketball program once brought immeasurable pride and joy to the state, but hasn't finished a season in the top 10 since 2013. It's on its fifth head coach since Bob Knight ruled things with an iron fist here back in the 20th century, and none have satisfied the constituents. Indiana lost 85-70 at home Wednesday night to Nebraska to drop to 6-9 in the Big Ten and 14-12 overall. State rival Purdue is pounding its way to a fifth regular season title under Matt Palmer. Matt Painter, Hoosier Nation isn't loving any of that. However, they really go for their women's team. A capacity crowd of 17,222 fans stuffed their weirdly shaped assembly hall Thursday and roared all game as their 14th ranked team thrashed the Hawkeyes. 86 to 69. Yes, Iowa with Caitlin Clark is selling out everywhere. Yes, there were plenty of fans who came for the expressed purpose of seeing Clark. The predominant majority, though, came here to root hard for the Hoosiers because they are a very good basketball program, 69-17 in the Big Ten over the last five years. Indiana's average home attendance is 9,869. It grows every year. Hundreds of adults with general admission tickets, many with their children with them, were in line at 4.30 p.m. for the 6 p.m. opening of the arena doors for the 8 p.m. game. The students' line was allowed to form at 3 p.m. There were plenty of people wearing Clark shirts and many kids holding signs supporting Clark, but Indiana crimson and cream were the primary colors. The fans were as into the game as any as at any Iowa-Indiana men's game I've seen here, and I've seen a few. They didn't come to watch Clark carve up their team. They came to root against her and try to rattle her. They rode her when she airballed a three-pointer and when she did the shocking by missing both ends of a pair of free throws. And you know what? The home fans treating the visiting Clark as a villainous threat rather than a cultural idol was just fine with Clark. 
Their crowd was incredible, she said. It's fun to play basketball here. The game was physical, and words that weren't complimentary were exchanged by players, including Clark. Things often got testy. That's exactly how it should be, exactly what women's basketball should be, Clark said. It should be heated. It should be that way. It's because people care so much. People are passionate about winning. Like Crawfordsville to Bloomington, this essay has been a long and winding road to reach the destination. Will Caitlin Clark leave Iowa after this season to play for the WNBA's Indiana Fever? The Fever have the number one pick in April's WNBA draft. At Thursday's postgame news conference, someone from Indiana asked Clark, what do you like about that Fever team? What do you love about what general manager Lynn Dunn and coach Christy Sides are doing here? Clark immediately shut down that, that down, saying, I'm just focused on this team right now, playing my heart out for Iowa and getting to represent my state every single day. I'm not really too worried about the future. That is what it is. It comes when it comes. Clark can, can make another year of Buku Bucks as a collegian. It's more money than drive the true greats, though. They want to play with the best and compete against the best. So it comes when it comes. In the meantime, the Hawkeyes need a bounce back today against Illinois, and it's not a wild guess to think the Illini will pay for what Indiana did to Iowa on Thursday. In boys basketball, North Lynn makes it eight straight state trips by Jeff Johnson of the Gazette in Dyke. Eight is great. In reality, two or three straight state tournament appearances is pretty great, especially in Class 1A, where there are so many more schools than in any other class. So eight, guess you have to come up with something better to describe what the Northland Boys Basketball Program has established. Great, great, great. A 74-59 win over West Fork in last night's 1A substate final secured a trip to Des Moines for the top-ranked Lynx. Another trip to Des Moines for the Lynx, seven in a row, plus one, W-O-N. Now we'll see if North Lynn, 23-1, can maneuver its way to another state championship game. It has done that in unprecedented six years in a row. The run this small public school is on is, well, great, 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 great. Senior forward Ty Fluhopt led North Lynn with 22 points with the other part of the Lynx's regular two-headed offensive monster, junior guard Mason Becken, adding 16. Seniors Brecken Bettenbender and Jake Van Etten complemented them with points 12 each. The other starter, junior Cole Griffith, had 10. That's putting everyone in double figures. The biggest question facing any Northland opponent, especially one that doesn't face NL regularly, is how it handles the Lynx's full-court pressure defense. For West Fork, 20-5, the answer was pretty well for about a quarter. Fluhop hit a pull-up three-pointer from a couple of strides past the arc at the first-quarter buzzer to give Northland an 18-17 lead. As you can tell by the score, things were up-tempo on both sides. North Lynn gradually built as much as a nine-point lead in the second quarter, taking a 35-27 edge to the break after Van Etten hit one of two free throws with just over a second left on the clock. The Warhawks cut their deficit to six a couple of minutes into the second half, but North Lynn went on a 14-0 run that essentially put things away, building a 20-point lead. And a quick note, the Big Ten women's tourney has sold out. Caitlin Clark can claim another off-the-court feat. The Big Ten women's basketball tournament has sold out in advance for the first time in the history of the event. The conference announced Friday that it expects a five-day attendance total of more than 109,000 at Target Center, where the previous record was set last year at 47,923. Tickets are available only on the secondary market for the tournament that runs March 6th through the 10th. And the History Happenings by Jessica Klein and Rob Klein. Jessica Klein, a leadership and character scholar at Wake Forest University, and her dad, Rob Klein, dad, Rob Klein who is not a scholar of any kind, they write this monthly column for the History Center. History via social media. You can find interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook. Do you follow the History Center on social media? If not, we encourage you to follow it on Instagram, instagram.com slash historylincoia, 
or on Facebook, facebook.com slash historylincoia. We acknowledge that social media has more than its fair share of issues, but when it comes to sharing snippets of Lynn County history, it is a wonderful resource and allows the History Center to fulfill its mission of preserving and sharing our community stories well beyond the confines of the Douglas Mansion. Here are just a few examples of the kinds of content the History Center shares. Did you know posts? William Hutchison Bashirs was born in St. Joseph, Missouri on October 27, 1897. He attended the University of Iowa and completed his degree in dentistry in 1917. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa. He was Kappa Alpha Psi member in 1915-16 in Iowa City. Dr. Bashirs enlisted in the Army in 1917 shortly after college. He served in World War I and was a first lieutenant in the Army. He returned home in July 1919 to Iowa City. He said he traveled as far as he could with the money he had, which landed him in Cedar Rapids, where he was a dentist for approximately 41 years. He was the first black dentist in Cedar Rapids, and most of the time he was the only black dentist in Cedar Rapids. His office was upstairs on the east side of the Paramount Theater. He was a member of and a superintendent at Bethel AME Church. He was the first black Boy Scout leader in Cedar Rapids. He was a member of Mount Olive Lodge No. 17 in Cedar Rapids and attained the 32nd degree Mason degree. During his lifetime, he served as president of the NAACP circa 1926. He continued to practice dentistry until his death in 1958. On this day posts, the Duane Arnold Energy Center was Iowa's only nuclear power plant. It is located on 500 acres on the west bank of the Cedar River, two miles north northeast of Palo, eight miles northwest of Cedar Rapids. In the late 1960s, Iowa Electric Light and Power Company, now Alliant Energy, Central Iowa Power Cooperative, and Corn Belt Power Cooperative applied for a nuclear plant license with the Atomic Energy Commission. On June 17, 1970, a construction permit was granted and work began. The original plan was to complete construction in 40 months at an estimated cost of $250 million. The Energy Center was named after Dwayne Arnold, who grew up in Sanborn in northwest Iowa. Arnold went to Grinnell College and went to work for Iowa Electric Light and Power Company. In 1946, at the time of of his death in 1983 at the age of 65, he was chairman of the board and CEO of that company, marrying along the way the daughter, Henrietta, of the previous chairman, Sutherland Dows. Arnold was committed to nuclear energy despite the controversy surrounding that source of energy and oversaw the construction and opening in 1974 of the plant that bears his name. In my opinion, nuclear power is the most beneficial method of anything we could possibly do to provide energy to our customers in the future, Arnold stated in a 1979 interview with the Des Moines Register. Construction was completed and the reactor reached initial criticality on March 23, 1974. The cost was $50 million over budget. Commercial operations began February 1, 1975. Popcorn Day. You'll also find posts connecting local history to larger themes, as in, today is National Popcorn Day. From the History Center archives is a pamphlet advertising the world's largest box of popcorn, an official Guinness Book Record attempt sponsored by National Oats and its Pops Right Popcorn. Individuals were asked to bring popcorn to the Cedar Rapids Reds versus Burlington game at the Veterans Memorial Stadium on July 7, 1991 to attempt to set a record for the world's largest box of popcorn. And historic photos. Posts also feature photos of places and people for the History Center's collection. For example... The Divar Restaurant operated at 312 2nd Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids from 1947 to 1960. The site was previously home to a cigar store and then the 312 Grill from 1936 to 1945. Green's Opera House baseball team sitting in a long open-air automobile, photographed by William Bayless circa 1915. For more posts that are likely to become among your favorite things in your feed, follow the History Center on your social media channel of choice. 
And Tara Templeman, who works for the History Center, writes in a piece of history, Look, see, hear, ask tour of CRR. Ten chartered buses took people around the city. On May 18, 1955, the Cedar Rapids Chamber of Commerce chartered 10 buses and took 360 people on a look-see-hear-ask tour of the city. On board were 225 high school students, their principals, and select citizens. The tour lasted from 8.30 a.m. until 3 p.m. Its goal was to give riders a better idea of what improvements were being made in the city and what others might be needed. The tour was so well-received that the passengers said they wished they could share what they learned with the whole community. Soon after, the Cedar Rapids Gazette published a city tour patterned after the Chamber route and designed for a family Sunday drive. The tour started at the Iowa Masonic Library and covered the Darling and Company Fertilizer Plant, the school additions at Arthur, Tyler, Hayes, and Garfield, the new Erskine School, a 500-house Skogman housing development, the Sanitation Department's new garbage truck garage, an expanded sewage disposal plant, the new Square D Company plant, and the new Martin Rosa Tractor and Equipment Company building. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 25th, 2024. I have been your reader, Sharon Faldudo, on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. The weather this week in Iowa looks real weird and that it's going to be 70 degrees today, tomorrow, and then I think Tuesday or Wednesday it's down to 30 with some below freezing. Just keep your coat handy. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other IRS recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We do welcome your comments, and thank you for listening.